Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Anna Lynn Rutherford talking with David Grua. David W. Grua is a historian and documentary editor with the Joseph Smith Papers. He holds degrees in American history from Brigham Young University and Texas Christian University. David is the author of Surviving Wounded Knee, The Lakotas and the Politics of Memory, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2016. The book was named a Choice Outstanding Academic Title and was awarded the Robert M. Utley Prize from the Western History Association. David is on the second tour of duty with the Joseph Smith Papers, having worked five years as a research assistant and now four and a half years as a volume editor. His specialties at the Joseph Smith Papers include the Mormon experience in Missouri, Mormon-Indian relations, and Joseph Smith's legal papers. This volume, Documents Volume 6, is one that I've been anticipating because of the rich time period of church history that it covers. And I want you to just start by giving the listeners some background on the volume, what's the history that's covered, as well as some of the types of documents that are included in this volume. Okay, sounds good. Well, Documents Volume 6 covers February of 1838 through August of 1839. This is a very tumultuous period in church history as well as in Joseph Smith's life. He had just fled from Kirtland, Ohio uh, in the wake of lawsuits, dissension in the church, uh, as well as he had a great deal of debt that he was trying to deal with. And he had received revelation in January of 1838, commanding him to leave and abandon Kirtland and to relocate the church to far west Missouri. So this volume opens up with Joseph Smith on the road. He receives a letter from Thomas B. Marsh, who's president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and he's also one of Joseph's staunchest defenders in far west at the time when there's considerable dissent over in Far West as well. Uh, So the opening document kind of sets the tone for the volume as a whole because there's conflict, there's controversy. We have the first explicit extant reference to plural marriage, Fanny Alger. Uh, So this is what Joseph Smith is walking into when he arrives in Far West. The volume continues with Joseph's efforts to build up Far West as a city of Zion. The outbreak of violence, first internally with dissenters in Far West, so this is when Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, John Whitmer get excommunicated. We have the the formation of the Danite Society that first is operating against the dissenters, but then transforms into an organization that defends the church from external opposition. We have the outbreak of the Mormon War in Missouri, the extermination order, and Joseph's time in Liberty Jail, and then it concludes with the Saints and Joseph relocating and founding Nauvoo in Illinois. Can you say a little bit more about the 1838 Mormon War? You need, <laughs> I think we need that context, right, right to need understand. need that background. Yeah. So I think, broadly speaking, the 1830s was one of the most violent decades of American history. This was a period when historians have documented riots and vigilante activity all throughout the United States. These are mostly driven by anxieties over slavery and abolitionism, but there are also other types of vigilante actions against gamblers that communities didn't want in their communities, but also against Mormons in Missouri. We have to understand that vigilantes saw themselves as being in the same tradition as the American Revolution. Violence outside of established channels was acceptable and justified and even necessary to maintain community values and and morals. Uh, The Mormons had been victims of vigilante violence in 1833 when they were expelled from Jackson County, and then again in 1835 when opposition again emerged against them in Clay County. So you have vigilantes you know, we have enough writings from their perspective to try to get a, a good sense of why they were opposed to the Mormons. 
A lot of it centered on Joseph Smith. At the time, they called him an imposter. Today, we would call that a con man. They felt like Joseph Smith was deceiving people. And they saw the masses of Latter-day Saints as uneducated, deluded, really kind of ignorant people. And when the Missourians saw Mormons coming in in large numbers to these counties, there was a lot of frustration, anxiety, and fear that these kind of people would ultimately be controlling the county government and that they would crowd out non-Mormons. What about the fact that these were primarily Northerners Mm -hmm. as well? Right. I mean, that would play into... So there's a cultural dimension as well, yeah. a regional d- dimension. I was thinking in terms of the mm-hmm. slavery issues, right? right? And so there's, the... there's, there are fears that the Mormons are all abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also fears that Mormons are maybe a little too sympathetic toward Indians on the other side of the okay. border. All of these things are combining, and they also are worried that Mormons might be a little dangerous. They might be a little unstable and that violence could break out. So the solution in 1836 was to create a a new county just for the Latter-day Saints. This was Caldwell County. So from the non-Mormon perspective, the Saints would go to this confined area, they would have their own government, and they would be able to live by themselves and not have any problems with other people who were competing for that same space. Right. But it was going to be just Caldwell County, mm-hmm. right? That was right. The, that was where the confusion comes. Exactly. Latter-day Saints, they were American citizens. They had the right to go and settle wherever they pleased. Right. And so they did not see themselves as, as bound to just Caldwell County. By early 1838, you start to get communities of Latter-day Saints in surrounding counties. What becomes Adam on Diamond in Davies County, and then what becomes DeWitt in Carroll County to the southeast, southeast of, of far west. And so in June of 1838, you have these two communities and they seem to be growing, and the response to the Latter-day Saints um, is hostility right away. Um, so it's in that context that Sidney Rigdon delivers uh, what is now infamously known as the 4th of July Discourse. In this discourse, it's really interesting, he he alludes to DNC 98. It's something that a lot of people don't realize. DNC 98 was a revelation that Joseph Smith had received in 1833 that gave the saints an outline of how to respond to external opposition. They were supposed to turn the other cheek three times and if the enemy continued to come upon them, then they were supposed to warn the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ not to come upon them. If the enemy persisted, then the saints would be justified in whatever they decided to do. So Rigdon, in his discourse, he recounted all the times the saints had been persecuted and driven. And then he said, we now warn all men in the name of Jesus Christ to come upon us no more forever. But if you do come upon us, and this is where he uses that, that phrase, it will be a war of extermination between us and them. Now he quickly qualifies that and says, we will never be the aggressors. We will never violate the rights of others unless they come upon us. And then we will fight to the end. But it is Rigdon who uses this it war of extermination yes. first, right? And people always ask me, where was Joseph in all of this? And that's an important, mm-hmm. can, you, can you talk about that and unpack sure. that a little bit? Because this is a definite turn in mm-hmm. the approach right. of the church. So Joseph was presiding. This was at a, a large community celebration. Joseph was the presiding officer. They had a big parade and they had a band. And then Rigdon was the orator of the day. Joseph was there. He heard it. And then afterwards, Joseph thought that the sermon was so good that it needed to be printed and published and circulated. And he wrote an editorial in the church's newspaper that he was editing at the time, the Elder's Journal, encouraging every Latter-day Saint family to acquire a copy of the sermon and to study it. So I like to joke that this was the first family home evening curriculum. <laughs> wow, what a great way to put that. That's a comforting family home right. evening discussion. <laughs> right. 
Right. So okay, this, but it's, that's an important context, right? Mm-hmm. We need to understand the actions that, yes. that follow from that this context. This helps us to see the, the mindset that the saints had mm-hmm. and how they were going to respond to any kind of external opposition. And so about a month later, when Latter-day Saints in Davies County got attacked when they were trying to vote, the response was not to go to law enforcement and say, these people have attacked us, they violated our rights, will you please prosecute them? Instead, they organized an army of about 150 men and went around and confronted people and said, we will not tolerate any kind of mob violence against us. And this was quickly turned into allegations that the Mormons were in a state of insurrection and that they had to be stopped. Eventually things snowball. By October, the saints living in DeWitt down in Carroll County get expelled by the anti-Mormons living down there. There is essentially no civil authority. Everything has broken down. Lilburn W. Boggs is standing off to the side, waiting to see how things play out. So the Mormons feel as though they need to defend themselves, and they defend themselves aggressively. Today we would call these actions preemptive strikes. So there were communities in Davies County where the Mormons believed that the mob was going to gather in those communities and then strike at Amandayaman and elsewhere. So the Latter-day Saints targeted those places. And this provides a really interesting case study of the regional differences in terms of how Northerners practice vigilante violence and how Southerners did. I was going to say, so how mm-hmm. do you draw the mm-hmm. line between vigilanteism mm-hmm. and preempt- preemptive strikes? I think that a lot of vigilantes see themselves as launching preemptive strikes. They're eliminating the threat before it comes to fruition. But people in the north, when they had riots, they tended to attack property. They would burn buildings, steal property, but they would not attack people. And when the Mormons go up to Davies County, they do exactly that. They burn buildings, they confiscate goods, but they are very careful not to attack anyone. Benjamin F. Johnson describes it as he's being courteous to a woman saying, You need to go to safety because they're going to burn your house down. The Missourians, most of them are from the south, they feel no compunction with killing people. So we see what happened at Hans Mill. 17 Mormon men and boys were killed. Major General John B. Clark, he's a non-Mormon general, he estimated that as many as 40 Mormons were killed during the conflict. 40. So that's a higher number than I've heard in the past. Right. So we only know the names of about half of those people. Okay. But there are references to others who, whose names did not get preserved in the historical records. Okay. So talk to me more about records that might come out of this that we see in Documents Volume 6. So it's really quite interesting. In the early stages of the conflict, we have letters. We have, we have Joseph who made an affidavit defending the saints' actions in in August when they confronted non-Mormons. But once you get into October, the records, if they ever existed, no longer do. Now, if you know anything about military history, if you're going to move men around, there has to be communication. And there are allusions in the extant records that there were letters that Joseph and others were sending around informing the people back down in Far West, what was going on. But those letters have not survived. So we have nothing, essentially nothing contemporary from Joseph's perspective that was created in October of 1838. What we do have, there's a Latter-day Saint named Albert Perry Rockwood, who's in Far West, and he is keeping a daily journal recounting all of this. He describes the campaign that goes up to Davis County as the Northern Campaign, he said they came back, they did not fire a shot. Essentially, it was a bloodless campaign. Mm-hmm. So he's celebrating that we won a victory, right. but we did not use violence against people. John Smith, who is the prophet's uncle, he is the stake president in Davies County. He's also keeping a journal. And on October 22nd, he wrote, the enemy has been driven from the county. 
Okay, unpack that history a little bit more, okay. the, the October history. That's what I was describing as the preemptive strikes. Now, it's also important to remember that a lot of the non-Mormons had already left. They had already relocated their families to go to Livingston County and elsewhere. So when the Mormons showed up, they expected to see a lot of people there. And they note how surprised they were that there was like five people in Gallatin when they rode into town. John Smith noted that those five people, especially those that were affiliated with the anti-Mormon mob, that they had been driven out of the county. So there were no pitched battles or anything like that. It was just a matter of scaring the remaining anti-Mormons out of the county. We also know that the anti-Mormons are located, there, there are these Methodist campgrounds, and they are located in Livingston County and elsewhere, and that is where the mob is located. And they're launching little strikes and targeting Mormon farms and isolated homes. And so people are coming into Adamondayamen at the same time that the, that the Saints are, are targeting Gallatin, Millport, and Grindstone Fork. And when we talk about enemy here and opposition, we're not just talking about Missourians that are against the Mormons. We're talking about former members. Can you talk just briefly about that as well? Sure. As this conflict has progressed, you have formerly faithful members, such as John Coral, Thomas B. Marsh, who start to question a lot of the decision-making, and they decide to defect, essentially. Now, as far as we can tell, they're not joining the mobs in attacking the saints. What they are doing is that they are communicating with the militia commanders. They accompany the militia into far west. In response to this upheaval, Lilburn W. Boggs, on October 27th, issues the infamous extermination order. He calls out 3,000 troops, and he tells them the Mormons must be treated as enemies. The militia marches on far west, and there are former Mormons among the militia. And they come in and they start identifying, well, there's Joseph Smith, there's Sidney Rigdon. And we've recently come across new documents that some of these men are, are going through and ransacking homes. So the militia is allowed to run, run wild. They begin ransacking homes. Uh, it seems likely that they are raping women. Not that the dissenters are involved with, with the sexual violence, but they are there and they're contributing to the, the broader chaos and upheaval. And then that leads to Joseph and others of the leaders being taken, right? One of the great byproducts of the Joseph Smith papers is the scholarly work that's produced by those of you who are editing. I want to focus on some of this work that you've been doing, particularly with the Missouri prison letters. And I love how you have put these letters that are so crucial to our theology as well as our history. You put them in conversation with a larger body of Christian literature. Let's just go there. Let's talk mm -hmm. about the work you're doing and about those prison letters. I was in charge with editing Joseph's prison letters, and this was a fantastic experience for me. I found that these letters were powerful both devotionally, but also that they sustain close scholarly scrutiny. The scholars can read these letters and learn a great deal about how Joseph is responding to this crisis. While I was doing this, two of my colleagues, Mark Ashurst McGee and Robin Jensen, were putting together an edited collection called Foundational Texts of Mormonism, where they were getting scholars to write on the Book of Mormon manuscript, or on Joseph Smith's journals, and they wanted me to write on Joseph's Liberty Jail letters. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so that, that collection will be coming out with Oxford University Press, I think in March. And I, I had a sneak peek, and it's fantastic. And then you also did a presentation on this at the Assembly Hall as well. So. I did. So I've given a few presentations. I presented a, a paper at MHA in 2016 that was kind of the, the origins of this paper. Uh, and then more recently, I did present at the Assembly Hall, which was 
a really interesting and incredible experience yeah. because it's such a historic building. Right. It's wonderful and, to stand there and, and speak in that building. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about the different types of letters, first of all. Okay. Just give a, you know, some background to that. You argue that these documents, the, the various letters, kind of give us a hint and insight into Smith's methods of text making. So talk about those different, what are the different types of letters we see? I saw my task in this paper both to zoom down to the to the granular details of how Joseph Smith is approaching his his project of writing letters to the saints. But I also wanted to zoom out and place these letters in, in conversation with other prison letters written by famous people in history. So we'll talk about the first. I call it text making. That's a, a phrase that I borrow from early American historian David Hall. Joseph, when he is writing to Emma, he writes the letters in his own hand. There's very little filter between Joseph and Emma. And I was able to find that husbands and wives in the 19th century really valued handwritten correspondence. They saw it as an intimate connection with the other person. And I found a letter written by Joseph to Emma in 1832 where he said, it is my husbandly duty to write to you in my own hand, and you need to write back to me in your own hand. So Joseph felt this way about handwritten notes and letters. So we have five extant letters that Joseph wrote to Emma. These seem to track his movements. So when he, after he gets arrested, in, he's first transported to Independence, Missouri, and he wrote to her telling her, we are in Independence, we expected it to be really crazy and hostile here, but ironically, our old enemies are now welcoming us and they're very interested in us. And then Joseph was moved to Richmond, Missouri, where there was a two-week preliminary hearing or court of inquiry where they, the Missouri officials evaluated charges against Joseph Smith, and he wrote her a letter at that point telling her, we've been moved, we don't know what's going to happen. And then on December 1st, when he was committed to the Liberty Jail or the Clay County Jail, he wrote her again telling her that this is, this is where I am. Then in December and January, Emma visited Joseph three times in jail. So we don't have any letters from those two months. She departed in February to go to Illinois. She wrote him a letter telling him that she has arrived safely, that the kids are okay, but they miss their dad. And then Joseph wrote her a letter in response on March 21st, and then another letter on April 4th when he was moved from Liberty up to Gallatin for a grand jury hearing. So these letters seem to track his His movements and also her movements. Um, And it tells us a lot about their relationship. He wants to maintain his family at the time that the church is, is in a state of crisis. He's also very focused on keeping his family together. Right. And it's fun to read the letter from Emma as well. We get so mm-hmm. little from Emma's pen or her mouth that interesting to see that in this volume. Lilburn W. Boggs, on October 27th, issued the extermination order. This order essentially defined the Latter-day Saints as enemies of the state of Missouri and commanded his militia, militia leaders to expel the saints. And he used this word extermination which is largely being used against Indians at the time. He's applying it against the Mormons, that they have to be exterminated. It's really kind of an interesting word because it's kind of vague in terms of what exactly it means. So the Latin roots just mean out of the border. Oh, really? Yeah, exterminus. But it seems to have been used at the time more than that to also mean killing. So as we would use the word now. (laughs) With our bugs, mm -hmm, right? Right, right. Scholars kind of debate, is Boggs just saying expel them from the state? That's an important distinction. Or is he authorizing his militia to kill them root and branch? But this sends the church into a state of crisis, and people have to decide, are we with Joseph Smith or are we not? So we have people like John Corll, Reed Peck, and others who are leaving the church. Albert Perry Rockwood at the time said that there are vast numbers of people who are leaving the church. And we don't know the exact numbers, but these are the kind of the, the phrases that are being thrown around. But there are other people 
who are remaining staunchly faithful, and they are interpreting their suffering as evidence of Joseph's divine calling. So Eliza Snow wrote a letter at the time where she anticipated the question of the recipient of the letter. She anticipated that he would ask, do you still believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet? She responded, I've seen nothing that would cause me to doubt that he is a prophet. She pointed to Jeremiah and his imprisonment in the Bible, and she said, you know, prophets get imprisoned. And so she saw Joseph in in that line of persecuted prophets. People are responding differently to the crisis itself. Joseph is using prison letters to intervene in this crisis. Because I, you think in terms of the crisis, we're leaving Zion, right? Mm-hmm. And not only that, but I, I know John Coral mm-hmm. even quotes, where was Joseph? Why couldn't he have foreseen this? Right. So I think it's interesting to put ourselves in that situation that the, the saints mm-hmm. were going through at that time. But let's continue to talk about the different types. So we have letters from his own hand mm-hmm. to Emma, as well as to another woman. Maybe you want to talk about that one. We have a letter to Priscilla Huntington Buell. She was living in Clay County at the time. Her husband was one of these people who had left the church. So she visited the prophet on March 15th and, at, and wanted to meet with him to get advice. Should she stay with her husband or should she depart and go with the saints? The guards would not allow her to, to meet with Joseph. Prisoners had tried to escape a couple of weeks earlier. Okay. So the guards were restricting what kind of um, interactions they could have with, with visitors. So Joseph wrote her a letter. He gave her a great deal of advice. He told her, work with your husband, maybe he'll come along. But he also expressed these really interesting sentiments about how he yearned to be reunited with the saints that he had been impeded up to this point from sharing with the saints the plan that that Heavenly Father had given him. And he was just anxious to be reunited so that he could teach them. And we we see this happening once he gets to Nauvoo, where he's speaking in public and he's teaching doctrine. This is a new Joseph, right? This is a new Joseph, and he's hinting at that in this letter to Prescindia. So other, Mm -hmm. other letters that we get. In fact, the mm-hmm. juiciest one, the best ones that we know. Okay. Well, I'll mention <laughs> those general epistles. I'll, well, I'll mention another one real quick that he wrote to Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. Right. Okay. These were the really the two remaining members of the Quorum of the Twelve who were still in Missouri at the time. Several of the members of the Twelve had apostatized during this period. You also had David Patton being killed at Crooked River. And so Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young were the remaining apostles. So Joseph and the other members of the First Presidency who were with Joseph in the Clay County Jail wrote to them, told them that they were given temporary charge of the church and its affairs until the First Presidency would be, could be released. So this is a significant letter in terms of tracking the growing authority of the Quorum of the Twelve during the 1830s. We have these three letters that Joseph sent to the church at large. And it's really interesting to contrast these letters with those that he wrote to Emma. Because he's not, he did not write using his own hand his, the, these, these general epistles. Right. Instead, he's working with scribes, which is his, that's his method. With the Book yeah. of Mormon, he dictated the entire thing to Oliver Cowdery um, and a handful of other people. With the Revelations, as far as we can tell, he dictated to scribes. That's what he's doing with these general epistles as well. It's really quite interesting the way that they've set up the mannequins at Liberty Jail right now. Okay. You see Joseph sitting off to the side by himself. Okay. And the other prisoners. Kind of in this writing, mm -hmm. revelatory moment. Yeah. He has a little desk on his his lap and he's writing himself. And the other uh, prisoners are playing Yahtzee. No. Right. <laughs> they're doing right. something else. They're, their backs are to him. <laughs> right. And okay. they're doing other things. But it's interesting, when you look at the letters, the text of the letters themselves, all five of the prisoners sign the letter with him. And for the most part, the letters are written in the plural. So we, th- we think this, we think that. So as far as we can tell, Joseph likely discussed the themes that he was addressing in these letters with the other prisoners and getting their advice, their input. But when it came down to it, we know that he was the voice that was dictating. He wrote a letter to Emma 
on March 21st, where he said, I, I've dictated a letter to the church. Alexander McRae, one of the fellow prisoners there, seems to have been his primary scribe. Okay. Caleb Baldwin also helped out oh, a little bit. Yeah. Parley P. Pratt, in his autobiography, described how Joseph would dictate revelations. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's probably a similar scenario here, where Joseph would sit, sit down and a scribe would sit nearby. Joseph would speak slowly and deliberately while the scribe wrote. And we actually see some evidence for that in one of these general epistles where we have two drafts essentially of okay. the same letter. One of the drafts, so the, the paper is the same size mm -hmm. in both in both versions, but Joseph in the in the earlier version, the letters are large and loopy, there's lots of space. Okay. And so we've got plenty of time mm -hmm. to write. Right. The next version, the letters are much tighter and McRae is able to fit more words on a line. The later version is two pages sh shorter, not because the text is any different, but because McRae is fitting more, he's cramming in more, more words per line. So this, I think, is really an interesting, because we don't have many dictation copies of the Revelations. Mm -hmm. But so this here, is, yeah. here we have what appears to be a dictation copy Okay. And we can see evidence for that. Even the speed mm -hmm. with which it was. Right. Okay. Fantastic. So we can, we can see that Joseph is going through drafts, essentially. He goes back and he, he makes corrections on the letter. McRae is also making corrections. And we don't know if McRae is doing this on his own or if Joseph is directing okay. them. But it's, it's a process that involves multiple drafts. And it's, it's interesting that Joseph seems to have mailed out both of the copies. This, as far as we can tell, is because he wants to increase circulation. So even though there are slight differences between the two, he just wants to get them out there. And back then, they didn't have copy machines. Right. So they had to send out handwritten copies. And that's why we have these two versions that have survived. Talk to me about the precedence for this. You talk about how Joseph's letters echo um, some literary precedents, specifically Paul's epistles in the New Testament, as well as John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Can you go ahead and just talk a little bit about that and, and that comparison that you've drawn? Sure. So Paul, several, you know, his main way of communicating with the, the early church was through letters. And some of these letters were written from some kind of incarceration setting. And Paul draws on this kind of rhetoric, this discourse of kind of, of martyrdom, of God's persecuted people um, that dates back to biblical history where the Israelites had been driven from their homeland and they had come to see their experience as, as almost a badge of honor, that suffering was evidence of their chosenness before God. Paul is picking up on that. Uh, there are places in the Gospels where Jesus is also talking about blessed are the persecuted. And Joseph is quoting and alluding to these types of passages in Paul's letters as well as in the Gospels. So Joseph himself is participating in this tradition uh, that he's getting from the Bible. But we also know that Joseph read Fox's Book of Martyrs. This was an incredibly influential text from the Reformation era, when Protestants were being persecuted by Catholics, Protestants would write letters to their supporters outside of the jail. What evidence do we have that Joseph Smith had access to the Book of Martyrs? So we have a, an autobiography written by a Latter-day Saint who was living in Michigan. He was converted in Michigan, and he describes how Joseph came to visit around 1834. And he describes a, a scenario where Joseph is sitting down at the table. He looks at the shelf and he sees the Book of Martyrs. He pulls it down. He makes some comments about how these people were inspired to the degree that they knew and that Joseph borrowed this Book of Martyrs and took it home with him to Ohio. He had time to, to read it and the Book of Martyrs included the full text of several of these letters written by Protestant prisoners. And they're patterning their letters after Paul. So Joseph is seeing from these two sources how people write in this way. 
look at those revelations that we have today that that are excerpts from the letters mm -hmm. you do see when you're aware of it you yes. do see that you see it parallel mm -hmm. to paul's letters in fact the papers give wonderful footnotes to those portions yes. of paul's epistles that mm -hmm. are quoted mm -hmm. even Good. Okay, so tell us some more about what might we know, not recognize, if we're not familiar with the Book of Martyrs. So Fox, he would discuss in his work, kind of his narrative, the reigns of kings and emperors dating back to the Romans okay. who persecuted the Christians. And he also talked about the reign of Mary in England and how she persecuted Protestants at the time. Joseph in the March 20, 1839 letter referred to the exterminating reign of Lilburn W. Boggs. So I don't think it's a coincidence that he's using that word and, and comparing Boggs to this tyrannical monarch. And there are also places where Joseph refers to his religious opponents as priests. And I found this to be really interesting because Protestants don't have priests. I guess Anglicans do, but most of the Protestants who were in Missouri did not have the office of priest. But Fox repeatedly referred to the persecuting priests in England who were persecuting the Protestants. So Joseph seems to be picking up on that language to refer to his Protestant opponents, even though they don't have that, that office. Okay, all right. There was another one that, that you mentioned, that the word dissembled. Unpack that just a little bit in terms of the Book of Martyrs. In the Book of Martyrs, a lot of these documents and in Fox's own prose, they would describe how prisoners would be brought in, they would be interrogated, they would be asked, are you a professor of this outlawed heretical faith? And so they had a word called dissembling that would mean basically hiding your true beliefs right. so that you could avoid imprisonment and ultimately ex execution. In the December 16, 1838 general epistle, Joseph said, we have never dissembled. Okay, um, there you go. So he seems to be picking up on that language yeah, as well. Yeah. So when we sing, now let us rejoice mm -hmm. and we'll mm -hmm. never dissemble, we understand what that yes. means and it's yes. some of the precedent to that. Good. You place Joseph's work in this context of prison letters, but you also talk about how it's different, how it diverges. And talk about that for just a minute. What, what is it that distinguishes Joseph's prison letters from those others that you're comparing? A major theme of the genre of prison letters is one of suffering. And scholars have shown that prisoners of conscience, as they are in this crucible of suffering, crucible of affliction, they are coming to a greater awareness of themselves, of self-knowledge through suffering. What Joseph repeatedly does in these letters is he argues that suffering leads to divine revelation. So in the letter to Prescindia Huntington Buell, he tells her, I would not feel as I do now had I not suffered the things that I have suffered. My, our troubles have helped me to understand the ancients in ways that I would not have. In the, the March 20, 1839 letter, Joseph indicated that there were things that had been held back from the foundation of the world that were now going to be revealed to the saints because of their tribulations and their sufferings. People don't necessarily realize, but the current DNC 121, there are only selections from the letters. And Orson Pratt, he would excise certain paragraphs, not because he was trying to hide that information, but because he wanted to condense the material. So there's one verse in DNC 121 that simply stated that um, God will give unto you knowledge by the Holy Ghost. Okay. Well, if you see that passage in the original letter, you see that Joseph first stated, after your tribulations, God will give unto you knowledge by the Holy Ghost. Wow. That to me is, we always talk about how Joseph creates a theology of mm -hmm, suffering, mm -hmm. but to link that to the receipt of revelation right. through, I think is really, really important. And we yeah. see Joseph in the letters is dictating revelation in yeah. the same way that he had previously. Uh, so in the December 16th letter, 
he dictates the text of a small revelation that is not currently in the DNC, but it tells Joseph, the keys that have been given unto you have not been taken from you. They're still with you. Be of good cheer. In the famous passages that are now in DNC 121 to 123, Joseph dictates material, if not in his own voice, it's in the voice of deity, where the Lord is consoling him, telling him that his suffering will be temporary. The famous passage about how no matter what Joseph has suffered, the Son of Man has descended below that all. Suffering will ultimately be for Joseph's good. Right. All these things shall give the experience, right. these types of things. He's talking about the general concept of suffering leading to revelation, but he's also including the text of revelations that the saints, when they read them in Quincy in Illinois, Mary Fielding Smith describes the letters as food for the hungry. hungry. I love that, mm -hmm. yeah. They really were asking for this, right? This yes. was one of, in this moment of crisis, this is, we, we want our prophet to mm -hmm. be a prophet, right? Mm -hmm. We want him to speak. And they do get that they through get this. I'm struck by the work that really these letters mm -hmm. do. You talk about how they are unifying the community, recontextualizing tribulation mm -hmm. as part of God's plan, and then giving this revelatory textual sustenance. Right. I love those words. Those are your words. Those are mm -hmm. your brilliant words. <laughs> Maybe we can talk a little bit about that and about how we listen to prophets today. I was asking my son before I came this morning, and he said, I would love to understand when Joseph Smith is talking as a prophet and when he's talking as Joseph Smith. And some of the work that Orson Pratt does as he lifts what words he takes out, he's kind of doing that, right, mm -hmm. a little bit. But I want to hear you, your, your experience looking at the original text. How do we look at that? There are places in the letters where it's very clear that it's Joseph speaking as a prophet to his followers. He is speaking in his own voice. He's addressing their concerns. But there are other places where the voice is clearly shifted, and it's the voice of deity, it's the voice of God speaking, and Joseph is in turn dictating those words. But there are some places where the shift is not readily apparent. It is so subtle where Joseph and his fellow prisoners are addressing the saints. And then at some point, and I've studied it very closely and it's very difficult to know when that actually happened, mm -hmm. where the voice is now deity's voice. Orson Pratt, the way he edited it, it's not always clear that a paragraph above it was definitely Joseph and the prisoners. So it's something that, you know, I, I hope that Latter-day Saints read the entire letters for themselves so that they can see if they can figure out, you know, when this transition happened in the letter between the voice of Joseph and the voice of, of the Lord. Great. And I love how you argue that this is what distinguishes Joseph Smith from this broader tradition. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, again, the work that these are doing to create a textual community. I like that word, and um, I want you to you know, elaborate on that a little bit. The root of the word religion is, you know, relates to ligament, this idea of the things binding a community together. As these saints are scattered and the community is lost, they're thinking that they're sent out of Zion. These texts, these letters, are binding them together. So talk about that. So I borrowed the phrase textual community from a scholar of, of uh, the Reformation and the literature of the Reformation. Her name is Ruth Inert, and I hope that I'm saying that correctly. But she wrote a book called The Rise of Prison Literature in the 16th Century. And she's the one who first kind of showed to me, you know, the, the role of texts in, in creating and sustaining communities. So she described how prisoners of the 16th century wrote letters. These, these are people like Thomas More and others who are writing to their supporters. Their supporters are copying the letters, circulating them. And there's a symbiotic relationship between the prisoner and the community, the audience outside of the jail. I also was influenced by David Hall, who I mentioned earlier. He wrote about this process of copying and how texts circulate within communities. Even if someone doesn't own their own physical copy, they've borrowed copies from other people, they've heard 
through word of mouth that a letter has been written. And so he argues that texts have greater currency than just the physical artifact that has survived to us today. So Joseph is doing the same thing, where he is writing letters to the saints. In this moment of crisis, they are circulating these letters. He himself is telling them, please copy these letters. So he sends it first to Emma. He says, I want you to read it first then give it to my parents, then give it to Edward Partridge, who is named as one of the recipients in the letter. We know from copies that have survived that people listened to this. Albert Perry Rockwood copied something like 29 pages of text, and he mailed um, his copy to relatives in Massachusetts. So we know that people as far away as Massachusetts are reading handwritten copies of Joseph's prison letters. There's an individual named David Foote He's living quite some ways outside of Quincy, but we have a letter that he wrote to family members. David Foote came from what we would call today a part member family. He's writing to his children who are not members of the church, and he knows that they're going to be skeptical. You know, why did dad go off to Missouri to follow this prophet? And look what happened, disaster. David Foote is using, he he somehow has his own copy of of, uh, Joseph's December 16th, 1838 letter. And he's using it as tangible evidence that Joseph Smith is a prophet. So he he asks the rhetorical question, show me a man who would be willing to suffer as much as Joseph Smith if it was all a con. And then he quoted something like 11 lines from Joseph's letter. And he says, this is tangible evidence that Joseph is a prophet and he's willing to suffer for his belief. So we can see how these the physical texts of the letters are sustaining the community as they copy them, as they circulate them. We have copies in the handwriting of women. Zina Huntington, she's only about 19 at the time, but she has a copy. Phoebe Woodruff at some point later, I think in the 1840s, she makes a partial copy of one of the general epistles that ends up in Wilford's papers. It's really interesting. This is the December 16th letter, so this is the, the one general epistle that does not get incorporated into the Doctrine and Covenants. But the heading on her copy said something to the effect that this is an epistle by Jesus Christ through Joseph Smith. But whoever wrote that viewed the December 16th epistle as a revelation from Jesus Christ. So that is a great advertisement mm-hmm. for buying or at least looking at the Joseph Smith papers, right? Right. This is revelation, perhaps, that we don't have. Let's talk about the way we look at those letters today. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to just, I know you're a scholar of memory, and I want you to think about how we have remembered the receipt of Doctrine and Covenants 121 and 122, and the prison experience versus what we're going to find in the Joseph Smith papers. The study of what scholars call collective memory or social memory really goes back to a sociologist who was writing in the 1930s and 1940s in Europe. And his name was Maurice Hobfox. I can't can't pronounce the German. (laughs) The German name is hard for me. But he was the first one to really articulate this idea of social memory. First, he argued that memory was a social construction. Our brains don't record everything that happens to us. Instead, it it records fragments that we later put together into coherent reconstructions. And his argument was that people don't do this as individuals. They belong to communities, and these communities have values that shape and influence how people remember their past. And there, this happens at the individual level, but also at the communal social level. So when people build monuments or write histories, everyone is shaped by their social context. So I would say that we remember, I think this even starts with Joseph himself in the jail, that he has certain frameworks that are molding and shaping how he remembers the Missouri experience. These frameworks include the biblical passages that we discussed earlier, John Fox. These are things that are shaping how he is remembering. And in turn, as we read his letters, that informs how we remember the past. So you'll notice that in the letters, Joseph does not say much about burning buildings or attacking the mob. There is one passage in the December 16th letter where he does say what we did in Davis County was just retaliation. 
that line was later removed from the letter because I think people were just a little too uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. kind of language. Let me clarify so, here. Yeah, clarify. Is that in the Joseph Smith Papers edition? Mm-hmm. Joseph seems to have written this letter in drafts. So we have an earlier draft that has that line, just retaliation. He then did a, a slightly revised version, and that's where that line has been excised. We believe that it's Joseph that's taking that out. You have to remember that Joseph is in the jail. He believes the guards may be reading his mail under charges of treason against the state, and he knows that anything he writes will be used against him. So he's being very careful in terms of what he is writing. The letters focus on where the saints fit in this long history of persecuted peoples, and he's not trying to get an, give an objective narration of the causes of what, of what had happened earlier that summer and fall. This process of collective memory is shaping how Joseph is writing these letters in the first place. These letters become foundational texts in the Latter-day Saint perception right. of themselves. In the canon, too, in the right? Canon. These are canonized. Right. So initially, yeah. initially, they're circulating these letters, they're reading them, they're treasuring the, the manuscripts themselves. They then publish the letters in the Times and Seasons. They then get into the church's history, and from there, Orson Pratt canonizes them as, as scripture. And these, in my experience, are some of the most beloved sections of the DNC. And people know that Joseph wrote these or received the revelatory sections in Liberty Jail, in his own crucible of affliction. And this has continued to shape our memory and our identity as a people. I really appreciate your work on this, David. I think you're doing some great things. Is there anything else that that you would say would be a highlight for people who are picking up Document Volume 6? Well, I think that for church members, you know, the Liberty Jail letters are powerful, but there are also other revelations in the volume that I think people will want to read and understand in their historical setting. The Tithing Revelation, Mm DNC 119. These are texts that are still important to us today. We may understand them slightly differently than they did at the time, and that's where the historical context comes in. And I think that it can enrich our study when we understand the context from which these revelations came. Then there are also some amazing discourses that Joseph Smith gave to the Quorum of the Twelve prior to their departure for England in 1839. Mm And there's, a, there's an interesting little treat at the, towards the end of the volume where we found in the process of our research, or we became aware of, a little book that Wilford Woodruff kept where he recorded these discourses. Uh-huh. And this little book was kept for much of the 20th century in the First Presidency's vault. But when the Joseph Smith Papers project was formed, President Hinckley indicated, we're going to give you everything. Right. And this was a little treasure that... People weren't aware of it prior to this, but it's D6 that made this, is kind of publicizing this little booklet that Woodruff called his Book of Revelations. Right. Wonderful. Well, thank you, David. This has been incredibly enlightening and looking forward to the work you do in the future. Thanks. Thank you, Tylen. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.